What a special day it is. Best day ever, I think I would say. This is one of those days. It is the day that makes us who we are. This day defines us as Christian people. As we've already seen in the scripture, if Jesus isn't risen, then our faith is empty. But because he's risen, our faith is full, full of power. It produces results in our lives, and the word of God is alive. Amen. Open your Bibles with me, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Several days ago, when I began seeking the Lord about Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, I had one verse in particular on my heart, and it's this, this last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I started looking at that verse and got all excited about it. And then I started looking at the verse before it. I thought, well, you got to say that verse. You can't just pull this one out. You got to go with that one. And I got all stirred up about it. And I started looking at the verse before that. I thought, man, you can't leave that out. So I'm shouting about those verses. And the next thing I know, I'm looking at the verse before it and the verse before. You got to be careful about this. This is how good the word of God is. If you're not careful, you'll end up at Genesis chapter one. And uh, that's exactly where I ended up. But I won't, I won't make you turn to Genesis 1 right now. But I will say this. We are headed for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Now, don't look at it. Okay. Don't look at that. No cheating, no peeping. That's where we're headed. But I got so stirred up about this that I finally ended up in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, around verse 9. So if you'd look at that with me. And I am just going to let the Word of God do the talking today. There's nothing that I could say before or after reading a scripture that would be more powerful or more important than the scripture that we've read. His word is anointed. I want to start here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and like I said, just read. I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation, and so maybe we can have this on the screen for you. But I'm going to begin, what did I tell you, verse 9? Let me begin in verse 8. <laughs> just keep backing up. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 says, We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. That means we've got questions. Is there anybody in here today honest enough to say, Yeah, I got some questions. <laughs> I got some things I'd like to ask God. Sure. We're perplexed, but here's the difference between us and everybody else. We're not in despair. This is what you've got to be watchful over, that you don't let your questions, the things you don't know, drive you into despair. This is how the rest of the world lives. When there's something they don't know or can't explain, it really depresses them. Now, you and I may have questions, but it's not good to just hang out in what you don't know. When there's something that you do know, you know what you should do? Go find something that you do know. When there's something you don't understand, go back to what you do understand. And if you got to go all the way back to, well, I'm saved, then go there. Go where you're confident, and that'll keep you out of despair. Yeah, we're perplexed. we got questions. We're not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, now what suffering is he talked about? These things he just listed. Pressure being perplexed, being hunted down. Other translations say persecuted. 
being knocked down. This is the suffering that he's talking about. He's not talking about suffering in sickness, disease, poverty, lack, or anything that Jesus has redeemed us from through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You got to be careful when you read something about suffering in the scripture and you automatically go to something that Jesus redeemed you from. That's not suffering according to the will of God. Look at what he's talking about. He's talking about pressure. He's talking about persecution. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. His resurrection life can and should be seen in our bodies. Verse 11, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. He said we live constantly in the face of death. Now you have to remember what was going on in the world around him while he's writing this. Christians were being persecuted to the point where their lives were being taken from them. And I know we live in a different day and time and perhaps where we live here in this country and even where we are in this state. We're in a, what appears to be somewhat of a conservative area, relatively speaking, to the rest of our state. And all of those things have sort of built into us a more, dare I say, relaxed position when it comes to our faith. But I want to know whatever happened to being willing to die for this. Just because we are blessed enough to live in a nation where it's legal to worship God, where it's legal to, to say the name of Jesus, and we don't live under the constant threat of death from our government just for saying that we believe in Jesus, just because we've been given some of these blessings does not mean you and I don't live with a willingness to die for this. A willingness to. Paul's saying, I live in the face of death every day. He said, but because of that, it's resulted in eternal life for you. He's saying, my willingness to, to die has resulted in your eternal life because you believe the message that he preached is what he said. He said, verse 13, we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. Other translations say what? We believe, therefore we speak. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. Verse 16, that's why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. You're familiar with this in other translations. Our outward man is perishing. Now, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but if you didn't know that already, let me inform you. This outward man, this physical body is, as we speak, on its way out. Yes. Well, it's depressing. Deal with it because it's just the truth. The outward man is perishing. And the, the unsaved, the people that don't know the Lord and don't have heaven as their hope, that fact alone, it is depressing. 
when they realize this outward man is perishing and it's happening like in a hurry, when they stand in front of the mirror one day and the next day there's more wrinkles than there were the day before, there's more gray hairs than there were the day before, and they feel like it was just yesterday that they were 18 years old and the quarterback of the high school football team and sitting on top of the world, and now what happened? You got a belly that's hanging out all over the place and nowhere near the amount of hair you had, and the outward man is perishing. That's enough to absolutely depress people. And guess what? The diet industry, the exercise industry, the plastic surgery industry is banking on you being depressed. Now, I'm not saying there's something wrong with eating good, working out. I do all that stuff. Let's take care of this thing. This is a gift from God. But even if it's getting older minute by minute, that's nothing to be depressed about. But all these industries, these multi-billion-dollar industries are banking on you and I getting so depressed and anxious over this perishing outward man that we're willing to go to any length and pay any price just to try to keep it alive just a, just a little bit longer. Hey, it's on its way out. Yeah, you should take care of it. Absolutely, you should. Feed this thing. Work it out. Get off the couch. Absolutely. These are all good things. But what you should be rejoicing about is not just the condition of this outward thing. It's the inward man. He said the inward man is being renewed, re-strengthened, re-energized day after day after day. And he says in verse 17, our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. Other translations say concerning these troubles, he says they are light and momentary. Now what trouble is he talking about? The trouble we read about, the pressure, the questions, the persecution, being knocked down. He calls all these things light and momentary. When's the last time you called your trouble light and momentary? We need to be. We need to be referring to these things that are trying to attack us instead of bowing the knee to them and worshiping them and fearing them. We ought to be calling these things light and momentary. You're going to have to develop a response to trouble. People are giving so much of their affection and their words to the trouble when really the trouble isn't worthy of any of your time and attention. You're going to have to learn to refer to trouble like this. You ready? I want you to say this after me. There you go. You can quote me on that. What are you saying? This trouble ain't even worthy of an actual word. But for you to really think that way and believe that, and for that to be reality, you're going to have to learn to compare the trouble. Big, impressive trouble, all of those things, they're relative. And it's only big because you're not comparing it to something bigger. And he said, these things are light and momentary compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. So this is how we respond to trouble. We start comparing it 
to the glory that's on the inside of us. So to verse 18, we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, where are we headed? Into this chapter. Verse 1, he says, For we know that when this earthly tent... Somebody put a hand somewhere on your body. Your body. He's calling this thing an earthly tent. We've already established this body is, it's a gift and it should be taken care of. It should be valued, but it's not you. It's your tent. It's what you live in. We know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, <laughs> that's what dying is. Just taking the tent down. You ever been camping? You ever taken the tent down? It stinks, doesn't it? Well, so does dying sometimes, but that's all it is, is taking the tent down. We know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven. Listen to what he's talking about. What is your house in heaven? It's an eternal body. So he's comparing these two bodies. You go back to the last chapter, he's comparing what you see with what you don't see. You have a body now that you can see, but what's coming is a body that you can't see. You can't see it right now, but it's coming. He said, we're going to have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself. Man, I hope you hear this. This is going to come up again in just a second. Made by, for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies. Somebody say amen. amen. We long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothes. We're longing for it. You think that when you're groaning in this body, you think it's because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. I don't like this pain over here. I don't like what I'm dealing with. But really what you're groaning for is that heavenly body that's coming. Really what's happening is your spirit is crying out, I am so excited about that heavenly body, not made by human hands, but made by God himself. That thing will never hurt. That thing will never limp. That thing will never be too much this, not enough that. Oh, you're crying out for that heavenly body made by God. We're going to put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. The Greek says we will not be naked. We're going to be clothed. We're not going to be spirits without bodies. We're going to be a spirit with a body. And it's going to be this one glorified. Amen. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared this for us. And as a guarantee... He has given us his Holy Spirit. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we're not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. You know what the King James says, don't you? For we live by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we'll be at home with the Lord. Paul's just being honest. He's like, yeah, I would much rather live in that body than this one. 
And if you're honest, and if I'm honest, we'd say the same thing. I said it yesterday. Come, Lord Jesus. Seriously, we were in the car with the kids pulling into the garage. And I don't remember how the conversation came up. But I've told you this before. Our kids, whenever we talk about things coming in the future, when they're older and they've got kids or they're at college or whatever, I'll reverse that order, after they've gone to college and then later they've got kids. (laughs) Whenever we talk about these things, one of our kids, either Justice or Jesse, will usually say, yeah, but Jesus will be back before that. And I've gotten to the place where I'm like, yes, preach it. And we do this thing in our house. I've told you before, but sometimes we'll just be in the kitchen or like yesterday in the car, I'll say, you know, Jesus is coming soon. As a matter of fact, he could come back right now. No. But we're living with an expectation of it. Why? Because we're crying out for that body, that heavenly body. He says, so in verse nine, whether we're here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil we've done in this earthly body. But we understand that our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord. We work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Are we commending ourselves to you again? No. We're giving you a reason, other translations say, to boast. I'm not sure I like this word proud here, but, but it says to, to, to boast in us so that you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. If it seems we are crazy, it's to bring glory to God. If we're in our right minds, it's for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. So we believe that Christ died for all. We also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Oh, I hope you hear this. We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Other translations say we've stopped looking at other people after the flesh. Now, this is a major discipline and not something that comes easily to view people not after this earthly tent, after this earthly body. I know the Lord dealt with Sarah not too long ago, a year or so ago, and told her, you will minister to your church more effectively if you'll learn to see them the way I see them. And that's after the spirit and not after the flesh. So you know what she did? She went through and actually posted a message on social media that said, I love you all, but I'm out of here. Essentially, am I telling the truth? I'm I'm getting off social media. I'm not gonna be following all all these people that I know, all these people in the church and, and gave a short explanation. Here's what the Lord's dealt with me, that I'll be more effective in my ministry if I'll do everything I can to see people after the spirit and not after the flesh. And in case you didn't know it, that's exactly what social media is. It is looking at people after the flesh. 
It's basically just a display of tent after tent, human flesh after human. I mean, it's, there's, there's nothing spiritual. The Lord dealt with her about that. And what was so interesting was we had some really take offense to it. You unfollowed me? You unfollowed me? Man, they, they really got upset about that. Totally missed the explanation. I'm doing this so that I'm more capable to love and to serve and to minister to you. You unfollowed me? Really took offense. Left. Over it. That's the kind of grip that looking at each other after the flesh can have on you. And Paul is saying here, by the Spirit of God and by His help and by His grace, we're not going to look at each other just after the flesh. We've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. That alone will set you free. Not to mention what it'll do for the others that you look at and you see. It'll set them free. We've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. You might be more familiar with this from another translation that says what? Any man who is in Christ Jesus is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And he's saying, stop looking at people under the old way, under the way they used to look. Look at them as a new creation. Verse 18, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ and has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. You're speaking on behalf of Jesus when you preach to the world, come back to God, be reconciled to God for God. Verse 21, this is where I've been trying to get. This is where I started days ago. This is where we've read all of that. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin. The original says to become sin itself so that we could be made right with God through Christ. What does the King James say? God, who, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become, say it with me, the righteousness of God in Christ. Everything we read from chapter 4 to the end of chapter 5 and as you'll see here in a moment, going back to Genesis itself was headed right there. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. And you see in these other translations what that word righteousness means. And at the direction of the Lord, I want us to spend some time this week going into the next weeks to come talking about righteousness. 
Now, we're going to talk about what it means and where it comes from and, and how you become that and all that. But I just want to start with this foundation right here. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. And these other translations bring out simply what that means. It means you've been made right. The word righteousness is not a word we use very often in our vernacular anymore, but it just simply means made right. You might see other translations that say right standing with God. I'll say it to you like this. Righteousness is your right to stand with God. You've been made right. I heard a comedian a couple of years ago, I think it was, talking about going into a doctor's office, going in for a checkup, and he was sitting in the office when the doctor came in. He said, hey, how you doing? What, what, what brings you in today? And this guy pointed to this little area right above his knee, and he said, doctor, you see, this, you see this small area right here? And the doctor said, yeah. And he said, this is where it doesn't hurt. What's he saying? Everything else hurts. This is the only place it doesn't hurt. This is where it doesn't hurt. And I got to tell you, I think that's where most people are living life. If you say to anybody, how's it going? Be careful who you say that to, because they may see that as an open door to start telling you about all the things that are wrong with them. Everything that's wrong in their bodies, everything that's wrong in the marriage, everything that's wrong in the family, everything that's wrong in the finances, everything that's wrong at work, everything that's wrong at school. And if you ask anybody anywhere to tell me, is there anything wrong with you? They could give you a list, write you a book, and they could do it without even trying. People are so aware. Have you noticed this? So aware, keenly aware of what's wrong all the time. They live with a constant awareness of what's wrong. How do you know that? Because they're constantly talking about it. This is the topic of people's conversation all over the world. Talking what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. But here's the thing. If you are a born again child of God, if you are a believer, then what you need to know is there's something right with you. And I mean right now. Not something that will be right with you. Not something that in heaven one day is going to be right. I'm talking to you about what's right with you right now. And we're going to have to come to the place where we can rattle off what's right with us as easily as somebody else can rattle off what's wrong with them. That's why we're starting something brand new today. I'm going to call this series, What's Right With You? Because you need to know what's right with you. And according to this scripture, there's something that's right with you. Somebody say it. There's something right with me. Say it again. There's something right with me. And when you called on the Lord Jesus and you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you were saved. That's in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Just a few verses later in verse 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When the Bible says whoever, guess what it means? Whoever. Whoever. You're a whoever. I'm a whoever. And when you called on the name of the Lord, I don't care what was wrong with you. The moment you made Jesus Lord, something became right with you. And you're going to have to find out what that is. 
That's what righteousness is. It's what's right with you right now. Um, thank you, Lord. How do we want to do this today? Go to the book of Romans, please, chapter 4. I'll read Colossians 1 to you while you're looking for Romans 4. Verse 20 says, By him, Jesus, God reconciled all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. Do you hear this word continue to come up? Reconciliation. I know this is Resurrection Sunday, but I want you to look at what happened in connection to the resurrection. And it's your, res it's your reconciliation. Now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Why? To present you holy. Well, there's something right with you. Holy is right. To present you blameless. There's something else right with you. And above reproach in his sight. People, particularly in the world we're living in right now, you hear this often. They blame their ungodly lives, their lifestyle, they blame their sin. And you hear them say things like, I can't help it, I was born this way. Have you heard that before? Yes. I can't help it, I was born this way. My response to that might actually surprise you. To someone who says, I was born this way. I don't want to get into arguments with them or anybody about it. But just for the sake of discussion, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, so you were born that way. You want to know the truth? We were all born that way. We were all born flawed. We were all born into sin. We were all born into unrighteousness. So in a sense, we were all born that way, right? Which is why God is not so interested in the way you were born as he is in the way you were reborn. Reborn. Yeah, you were born into sin, but you were reborn into holiness. You were born flawed, but you were reborn flawless. Yes, you were born into unrighteousness. I was, you were, all of us, but we were reborn into the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I think I just need to hear you say it. I am, I am the, righteousness the righteousness of God, of God in Christ. Now, that's one of the biggest things you or anybody else could say. It is a massive statement. It is such a huge statement that religious spirits can't stand it. How dare you claim to be righteous? Oh, we know Jesus is. Yes, we understand Jesus is righteous, but how dare you claim to be righteous? How dare you claim to be holy and blameless? How dare you, right? It's a massive statement. And people, when they hear you say it, I am the righteousness of God in Christ, they want to say, well, yeah, well, how'd you become that way? You know what the answer is? I was reborn this way. I was reborn this way. What way? Righteous. 
with a right to stand in the presence of God. How'd you become that way? Was it something you did? No. Was it something you worked for? No. Was it something you earned? Did God come knocking on your door one day and say, wow, you have kept every law so precisely, so perfectly. I owe you some righteousness. I owe you some salvation. No, none of those things happened. How did you become this way? Answer me, church. Come on, answer me, church. How did you become the righteousness of God? I was reborn this way. That's your answer. I was reborn this way. In the book of Romans chapter four, man, I got to hurry. Would y'all listen quicker, please? Romans chapter four. This is another one of those chapters. I mean, we could read all of chapter three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I mean, it's all preaching the same thing. But in Romans chapter four, down around verse 16, it's talking about Abraham. It says, therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. That's us. Who is the father of us all? As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of whom he believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Verse 19, not being weak in faith, he didn't consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced, fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him, talking about Abraham, for righteousness, righteousness. Why was it accounted to Abraham for righteousness? One reason, he believed. He believed God. And you see that echoed all throughout this chapter. He believed God. That's, that's what he did to be counted righteous in the sight of God. And this same chapter tells us that if Abraham's righteousness was according to works, he could boast, but it wouldn't be before God. It wasn't according to works. He believed. Abraham believed what God said. It was accounted unto him for righteousness. But listen to verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be. What it? Come on, I heard it. What is it? Righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered up, listen to this, verse 25, who was delivered up because of our offenses. That means he went to the cross because of our sin. But what he did in the cross, I hope you're awake, is different than what he did in the resurrection. We sort of lump all these things in together and to an extent that's fine, but listen to this verse. It draws a delineating line between what happened at the cross and what happened in resurrection. Yes, he went to the cross for your sin. And when he died, the price for your sin and mine was paid. But if that's all that had happened, it would be basically a note that said, okay, 
your debt's paid. You had a debt, and it's paid, so now you don't owe it. And if that's all it was, that'd be enough to be thankful, right? But that's, all, that's what it would have been if all that had happened was the cross and his death. Because he goes on to say in verse 25, he was delivered up because of our offenses, our sin, and was raised because of our justification, because of our righteousness. One translation says, so that we could be declared righteous. If all that had happened was the cross, it would just show that a debt was paid. But because of the the resurrection, it completely wiped out that there ever was a debt to begin with. Your debt's not just paid, it's totally gone. And you, because of that, are righteous in the eyes of God. We couldn't be righteous. We could not have a right to stand with God if Jesus hadn't been resurrected. Our debt would be paid, and thank God we wouldn't have to pay it, But what he did in his resurrection gave us the right to stand in the presence of God as though, I don't even know if you're ready for this, as though you'd never sinned. Not just that you sinned and it got taken care of, as though you never had holy, blameless, irreprovable, without reproach in his sight. Now this chapter four goes right into chapter 5. I bet you knew that. And all of this is about righteousness. But if you fast forward to verse 10, the Bible says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. Not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation that reconciliation and righteousness, I mean, it's essentially saying the same thing. Have you ever been at odds with somebody? You ever had a falling out, an argument, and there was distance between you, but the two of you reconciled? Well, what do you say? Well, are, are we good? That's how we like to say it, right? Are we good? That's how guys, maybe I should say it. This is how guys say it. We good? There's a lot of unspoken things being said right there in that statement. We good? Yeah, we good. The kids... Uh, our kids just a few weeks ago had a little argument with each other and got sent to their respective bedrooms. And um, when, when I came back to deal with it, I saw that our daughter, Jessie, had written a note and apologizing to her brother, Justice, and put it on several sticky notes and stuck it to his door. And it was very sweet. And he wrote a note back that said, I think it said, best friends forever. And at the end of it, it said, hug it out. Hug it out. What's he saying? We good? It's reconciliation. I know that's a very simple way of explaining it, but you know what you can say in the presence of God now? We good? You know what he says? Hug it out. Nothing between us. Reconciled. Righteous. Now he says in verse 12, therefore just as through, now listen to this, just as through one man sin entered the world. Now what man is he talking about? Adam. And death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. When Adam sinned, 
it opened the door. And when sin came into the world, it didn't come alone. What came with it was death. Now, this should not have been a surprise to these two, Adam and Eve, because God had told them, in the day you eat of this fruit, what's going to happen? You shall surely die. The only problem is, when we read the account of what happened in the Garden of Eden, Eve took the fruit, gave it to her husband, he ate, and in our concept of death, they didn't seem to die. Because when we think of death, we think of cessation, right? The cessation of a heartbeat, where, where once there was, there was a, a living tissue pumping blood because of death, now it, the fountain's dry. Where once there was life in the body, body, when death occurs, the body falls lifeless to the ground. So when you read about what happened to Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit and they didn't die, or did they? Did they? Maybe we need to better understand what death actually is. Because when they sinned, it opened the door. And when sin came in, death came with it. And death, as you'll read throughout this in Romans chapter 5, reigned over all men. Death reigned. Now what's so tragic about that was up until that moment, Adam had been the man. God gave him the place of authority in the garden and told him to keep it. And that word keep means to protect and to tend it. And when he let sin and death in, he gave all that authority away. But he didn't just give his authority away. He gave your authority away. He gave away our authority. When sin entered and death came with it, and death, the Bible says, right here in Romans 5, reigned over all men. But then he starts talking about Jesus. And he says in uh, verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who's a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more, oh, don't you like those words? Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came through many offenses resulted in justification or righteousness. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Righteousness is a gift. And it's the gift that came to us through Jesus. Adam gave away your authority. Jesus got it back. But if you don't understand what's right with you, you'll never operate in that authority. You'll never be able to execute that authority. You've got to know and understand what's right with you. Now, Without taking the time to turn back there, I told you this goes all the way back to Genesis. What Adam and Eve did the moment they, were, they, the moment they sinned, 
You remember what the Bible says they realized? They realized they were naked, unclothed. Is that not where we started just a few minutes ago? About having a tent, having a house? They realized they lost the one they had. So you remember what they did? In an attempt to cover themselves. This is self-righteousness. In an attempt to hide shame, in an attempt to cover flaws and to hide nakedness, they made clothes from fig leaves. Somebody say, ouch. Not comfortable. Clothes made by human hands. And they dressed themselves in it. And it's a pathetic attempt, isn't it? To cover for yourself. It's a pathetic attempt to hide your shame. And that's what self-righteousness is. This pathetic attempt to hide, to cover, to dress yourself up in your got-it-all-togetherness. And you may have some people fooled. But in the eyes of God, it's as pathetic as Adam's fig leaf speedo. And they thought, I suppose, they were going to be able to convince God that they weren't naked, that they were clothed. And God came walking in the cool of the evening. Adam, where are you? He found them and Adam said, we hid ourselves because we were naked. Who told you you were naked? And that's when the blame game started. Well, she did and she said, well, the snake did and you know the story. And in that moment of the fall, God told Adam what he had let into the earth. Because of this, he began to explain to him, you've lost your place. He began to explain to him, if you're going to eat, it's, not, it's no longer going to be a free gift. You're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to toil for it. It'll be by the sweat of your own brow. Don't you know Adam just looked back at him and said, What's sweat? The man had never sweat for anything in his life. It had all been a gift. But God went to work right then on what we call the plan of redemption. He wasted no time. You know what he did? He said, guys, we're going to have to do something about these fig leaves. Oh, you noticed, huh? Yeah. And the first thing to ever shed its blood for man was an animal so that God could give him a suit of clothes. And that's why Genesis chapter 3 says in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, or no, excuse me, uh, verse 21, also Adam and his wife, uh, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Isn't that something? The first thing to ever die and shed its blood was, the, was so that we could be covered properly. And it was a suit not made by Adam, not made by Eve, not made by human hands, made by God himself. That animal died as a sacrifice, and every animal from that one 
all the way through the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. There's a sacrifice coming. There's one coming that'll shed its blood. But it won't be the blood of bulls and goats. It won't be the blood of sheep and ram. It'll be the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be the final sacrifice. So that we could be clothed again. Now let me begin to say this to you in closing. I want you to find Luke chapter 15. This is so important. You find Luke chapter 15. Guys, put on the screen for us Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10. And I want you to keep in mind everything we've read so far about our clothing, okay? About this body being clothing, the body that we'll have in eternity with God being our clothing. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. He said, my soul shall be joyful in my God. Keep going. For he has what? Clothed me. With the garments of salvation. He has covered me with what? The robe of righteousness. You know what these are? These are your church clothes. Now, when I was a kid growing up, and we were in church without fail week after week, I had this little section in my closet, and that's where we kept the church clothes. And I had clothes that my mom and dad bought, and those clothes were for church. They were not for school. They were not for playing outside. They were not for getting dirty. These were your church clothes. And man, people have made a big deal for generation after generation about church clothes and what you should wear to church, what you shouldn't wear to church, and you know, that's fine, whatever. But just as God is more interested in the way you're reborn than the way you were born, I think he's more interested in the, the, the clothes you wear because you are the church, not the clothes you wear to the church. There are clothes that we put on because we are the church. And what are those clothes? They are the garments of salvation. Now, this in itself is a study, but notice what he said. You have put on me the robe of righteousness, covered me with that robe. Go ahead. Luke chapter 15. Thank you, Lord. I want you to begin down around verse, verse 11. Luke 15, 11. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, but when he came to himself. Aren't you glad that at some point in your life, you came to yourself? 
You got to let people have this opportunity to come to themselves. When he came to himself, this is the first thought that hit him. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I'm sitting here dying in hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What's he saying? I'm not righteous. I'm not righteous. I'll tell him how unrighteous I am. And I'll tell him to make me like one of his hired servants. Verse 20, so he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But look at this, verse 22. Are you ready? Verse 22. But the father cut him off. Didn't even let him finish the speech. <laughs> cut him off. And the father said to his servants, bring out the best. Come. Bring out the best robe. Now there's a word in here that the King James doesn't put in there, but you see it in other translations and it's in the original. He didn't just say, bring out the best robe. He said, quick, bring out the best robe. And that just happens to be my favorite part of this whole story. Quick. Somebody shout it. Quick. Go get the robe. Quick. Bring out the best robe. Now who's robe in this house do you suppose is the best robe in the house? Huh? This is the father's robe. Now I've been hearing this story my whole life and I know many of you have been too, but I found out something about it yesterday and it made me so thrilled. This word robe is a, wor is a word that means a long fitting gown as a mark of dignity, a loose outer garment extending to the feet worn by kings priests and people of rank. This is what the father said, go get and put on this filthy, smelling like pig, stinky son of mine. What did he say? Quick, quick, go get the robe of righteousness. Go get the robe that you wear that signifies the place that you have, this place of rank, this place of position. And he said, do it and you do it quick. So many people's perspective of God is that when you come and you start talking about how unworthy you are, that God's going to look at you and say, yeah, okay, well, we'll see. Let me just, well, we'll see if you really mean this repentant stuff. Huh? Well, we'll give it about 10, 15 years of you living right, living holy and not doing any of that other mess again. And yeah, if you miss it once and you're starting over, then we'll see about you being righteous. Then we'll see about you being holy. No. What did he say? Quick, put it on him now. Oh, but let me go get cleaned up first. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. The robe will do it. See, this isn't just like any old robe you or I put on getting out of the shower or waking up in the morning. This isn't like some robe that you've got hanging up in your bathroom right now. This is the robe of the righteousness of God in Christ. And you don't go get cleaned up before you put the robe on. The robe will do it. The robe will clean it. 
the robe will wash it all away. He said, quick, go get the best robe and put it on him. Quick, go put some sandals on his feet. Why? Because slaves and servants are barefoot. Sons wear sandals. Quick, go get a ring and put it on his finger. What is that? That's identity. That's authority. Quick, restore him to his rightful place as a son. Quick, he's righteous. He's righteous. Why? Because he came home. Because he came home and said, Father, I repent. And that's all he needed. That's all he needed. Come on, stand up with me. You and I have been given this same robe of righteousness. There's something right with you today. Church, I said, there's something right with you today. I don't know what you might think is going on that's wrong. Something wrong in the body, something wrong in the relationship, something wrong in the finance. Fine, but you need to find out what's right. There's something right with you. You know what it is? You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I think you need to say it again. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. He has given me his very own robe. I wear this robe of righteousness in faith. I make the exchange. Not my righteousness. My righteousness is as filthy rags. I take off these filthy rags. I take off the fig leaves and I put on the robe of righteousness. My right standing with God. And I see myself through his eyes, holy, blameless, above reproach in his sight. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Your resurrection means my righteousness. Your resurrection is my reconciliation to God the Father. And I thank you for it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the house of faith.